my presentations when I do one on black history. I say before I leave to the audience, no matter what your race is, no matter who your family is, your history is important. Mm -hmm. And please go and get with older members of your family and have them identify photographs and people within your family because black, white, Polish, Jewish, whatever your family background is, know it, embrace it, and that will buffer you against all of the attacks and ill judgments that will come your way in life. You will not be jealous and envious of others because you will know how rich and great your history is. So that's kind of why I do this, is that I want people to respect themselves, and that would, in my opinion, make them less likely to be envious and hateful of others. That was activist and community archivist Cal Williams. Cal sees his involvement in activism as more of a pull than a draw. He didn't plan it, it just happened. Seven days after he was born, Pearl Harbor was bombed, and most of the men in his life went to war. So the influences he had at those early stages came from the women in his life, and he saw how they did what they could to help the war effort. He's 80 now, and his list of achievements are extensive. They include the president of the NAACP of Alaska, the recipient of the St. Francis of Assisi Award, and working with History Makers, an organization that collects and preserves the well-known and unsung stories of African Americans. Considering his work with History Makers and the Anchorage Museum, Cal says that he chases the dead. He reads obituaries and attends funerals in order to collect the stories that would otherwise be lost forever. So here he is, Cal Williams. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. I recently reached out to you about being on the podcast, and when I asked you if you had any equipment or the equipment that was needed to record remotely, you said, of course not. I'm 80 years old, for God's sakes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And the truth is, I've got quite a bit of uh, technical stuff. I am somewhat a technical geek, but I've bought numerous things, including about four different drones that I've yet to put in the sky, uh, more than 10 minutes. I get these impulses and urges, oh, I gotta keep up with what's going down, or (laughs) keep down with what's going up. Um, And so I run out and I buy this stuff, and and then I wait for a grandson or a nephew or somebody to come over and walk me through the installations rather than reading the instructions because God knows men aren't supposed to read instructions, of course. So (laughs) there I am with all of these things around the house that the young people say, wow, man, you're cool. You got that. And yeah, but don't ask me how to turn it on. (laughs) What made you want to get a drone? Um, well, (laughs) somewhat of a rebel (laughs) that I am. I heard that they were going to start restricting who could get them and 
and you'd have to have a license, and the federal government was going to do this and that, and I thought, I'm going to get me one before they implement that law, and I'm going to keep mine hidden under a tarp that they'll <laughs> never know I've got it, and if they ever come to get me, I'll be able to get my drone and kill them. <laughs> I don't know. That was part of it, and the other was indeed all of the beautiful sceneries and stuff that people were bringing and showing with camera angles that had heretofore been unseen. You know, you <laughs> quite quite a bit to get a crane to go where drones were going, and they didn't have the flexibility and the speed and stuff. So I was just fascinated by that and thought, oh yeah, I could do it. But then the first time I put the thing in the air and it ran across the street and into the neighbor's yard and all that stuff. And I had to sheepishly go and retrieve it. I thought, ah, I'll wait for a larger feel. <laughs> and you're also a photographer, right? Yes. I um, developed a fascination with photography at a very early age. When one day father Ardwin Hiller, this priest at Little Flower Academy, where I attended school, came out onto the outdoor basketball court to take a picture of us kids running around out there. And he took the picture, and then he magically showed us the picture almost instantaneously. It was Polaroid. I had never heard of such a thing that prior to that, somebody took your picture, it took weeks because they had to send it away and wait for it to return and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. here was this magic priest that could produce your photograph immediately. Oh, man, I thought that was the coolest thing. And so, indeed, from him and uh, from my dad, who served in the military and came back from the military, turned on by uh, photography. He had bought a camera overseas and taken some photographs and and stuff and so he was constantly come on boy let me take your pictures or taking pictures of something uh so yes at an early age i i developed this love for photography and i did take a few courses of photography along with my uh, cinematography and acting uh stuff in in college and just i've always loved uh composition and and uh, various views uh exciting views that you don't just don't see i i love shooting things more than shooting people because it ends up i like shooting people but uh oftentimes it turns up with oh make sure i get a copy of that picture and i okay and i don't get it to them and then i see them yeah you took that picture of me years ago and you never did and you know man okay i'll, I'll find it among the millions of pictures <laughs> but landscapes never ask for their own pictures absolutely <laughs> <laughs> do you remember those photos your dad used to take i do in fact uh, one that is very memorable to me as i say i grew up in Louisiana, and there in 1963, I've got a, 62, I've got a black and white picture that my dad took of me and his mother uh, standing in a half inch of snow in Louisiana on Briard Street in the house that I grew up in. So that is the most memorable picture uh, that he took uh, for me. 
And there was another one that he took of my mother standing in back of his car. Those two uh, I have to this day, and they're my most treasured uh, pictures. Those are the ones that I'd grab and run out of the house with if there was a fire. What do you think is the most memorable picture that you've taken? Ah, now that, my goodness, there's been so, 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 so many. Uh, but it probably would go back again to my mother. And that was uh, probably the last picture that I took of her uh, before she died on a visit. I live in Anchorage, Alaska. She lived most of her life in New Orleans. And so I would get to New Orleans far too infrequently. And on one of those, the last visit, of course, uh, I took this picture of her walking in the down, not in the French quarters, but a block or so away at one of the popular cemeteries. They bury people in New Orleans above ground to keep, because the, the city is below the water table and most people don't want to be buried uh, in the ground because it's saturated with water and flooding and all that stuff. So the, the people who can afford to do so try and bury their their relatives high above ground. And my mother always said that, don't bury me down in there with the water, with the snakes and stuff. I don't want to be <laughs> on the high ground. So, but I did take a picture of her uh, with that cemetery in the background. And you know, I thought, well, darn, this picture kind of haunts me that I took the last picture of her standing in front of the cemetery. But I liked the, the, that day and the memory of that day. Do you remember the the last photo you took? Of her, my mother? Of anything, you know, the most oh. recent photo. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> this was just yesterday, in fact. Um, every day I, I take uh, some pictures of something, and every day I post something on Facebook. But yesterday um, I was engaging in activities with, Alaska Housing Finance Corporation, they wanted a, a, an ID, a, a photo ID. And I told the lady, well, uh, I guess I can get over there and drop it off. She said, oh, no, uh, we have a portal and go online and da da Oh, Lord, lady, please. I'm, <laughs> as you said, 80 years old, and now you're going to send me to a portal, and now I've got to do the da-da-da. So I did. Clickety-click and went through all of that, and there was this little point on there where it says, submit the photo. I clicked on it, and lo and behold, or behold and lo, up came three options. One with a little camera on it, and the other with a folder for files, etc. And I guessed correctly and clicked the camera, and suddenly my camera came on. I took a picture of the photo ID. It said submit, and... Lo and behold, again, mm -hmm. there I had done what she wanted me to do without driving across town and dropping it in the box. <laughs> <laughs> this high-tech stuff is rushing me on. <laughs> and do you take photos for, for fun, or do you see it as part of your work as a community archivist? Both. Okay. Both, indeed. Uh, as I say, the stuff, I was going to say I put uh, 
kind of touristy stuff. Look at how wonderful my city is, how beautiful the, the park is, or how deep the snow is. I put those kind of things out for family and friends and people uh, in the lower 48, as we refer to it, mm -hmm. uh, the other 49 states, including Hawaii. Uh, I put them up there on Facebook for that purpose, but indeed, uh, my work with the museum uh, requires that I'm, I'm collecting as much as I can on African-Americans who lived in or had some involvement with Alaska, and oftentimes that has me taking a picture of a picture or a picture of a person um, for that reason. Yes, so I do it both as work and pleasure um, all day long or as, as opportunities present themselves throughout the whole day and night. And, night. <laughs> mm -hmm. and Cal, I want to talk about your work with the Anchorage Museum, but let's do that later. Okay. I have, I have some other questions that I have, uh, that I want to get to before that. And something I realized in, in my research on you is that you've spent so much of your life working to make the world a better place, be it through your work in activism, your work in politics, photography, uh, back on May 28th of 2019, Senator Dan Sullivan named you the Alaskan of the week. I mean, as I was doing that research, I found myself thinking, how am I going to narrow all this down? <laughs> when you think about your life, where do you think the draw toward activism started? I see it kind of as a pull, really, rather than a, a draw, um, that I didn't plan it. I just kind of followed the forces of the, a, a pull. My mother was an active uh, gospel singer in the choir and sang with me in her uh, womb uh, until they said, girl, you're going to drop that baby in the sage. Stop singing for a week or two anyway. <laughs> so there I was, uh, a Catholic trapped in a Baptist gospel womb, which was, you know, kind of from the very beginning, <laughs> a temperament and a rhythm that was ingrained in me to be um, spiritual and and uh, entertaining and vocal and all that stuff. Then um, seven days after I was born, Pearl Harbor was bombed and most of the men disappeared. So the influence that I had at the early ages was women and my grandmother, because again, we were at war the women stepped up and were doing what they could to promote the war efforts, saving uh, uh, cans and tin cans and rags and stuff and selling them somewhere because this was all part of the big war effort. Mm -hmm. And people talked about war, oh, we're at war. And I can remember at an early age, uh, them dragging me out in front of company and boy, where's your daddy? And I, oh, he's overseas fighting for our freedom. Everybody, yay, that boy's so smart. <laughs> <laughs> so I was pushed out to be uh, an entertainer and one concerned about social and what's going on because these older people, my grandmother was, you know, 
it was kind of like I was raised by the 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 other generation. I I viewed my mother and my father almost as my older siblings because my grandmother was in charge of them and me. So you know that was the the this highest level of authority. I thought was my grandmother, my grandfather, mm-hmm. and that. My mother and father were, well, okay, they, they have some power, but they don't have the, the full power of the house. And my grandmother was one who was a, a licensed practical nurse. They made colored nurses. Black people were called colored people back in those days. They made these colored nurses so that white nurses would not have to uh, administer to and tend black soldiers or colored soldiers coming back from the war with legs and arms shot off and stuff. So they go, ah, yeah, well, let's make some of them colored ones nurses and they can take care of their own. And my grandmother was fortunate enough (laughs) through segregation to become one of the first licensed practical colored nurses of Louisiana. In fact, she moved on to become the president of it. So being in a house with a person with that kind of activity and statue, if you will, uh, made me think that that was what we do. That was who we were. I was in the house of Lilla Culpepper and we served others and it was our duty. Then just across the street was this Catholic school started by the Franciscans for colored children. We had St. Matthew, which was a white Catholic school in Monroe, Louisiana, but we didn't have one for those colored kids. And the Catholic Church wanted to extend itself into the community of color, started this school and this church. And they were also, most of them, um, or a lot of them, German, had German ancestry and were determined to prove that Hitler was wrong in his concept of this superior race. They wanted to assure that that colored kids could learn that two and two was four, just like everybody else. They insisted that though Louisiana required 17 credit hours or units to graduate, Little Flower required 24. We got to be the best. We must be the best. We must be courteous and kind at all times. We must carry ourselves in a manner that we represent Little Flower. People must know that you go to Little Flower just by the way you articulate and talk and walk. So that was the indoctrination, if you will, that I was fortunate enough to get. During the segregated South, I was... um, exposed to vocabulary words that were not in the quote colored public school and and concepts of physics and calculus and stuff that were unheard of over in the colored schools some of my relatives and stuff who went to the public school they they were bright and smarter than me in most cases but I was able to Uh, be exposed to a broader array of information and talent exposure than they. 
and most of my siblings or my classmates uh, started out first grade together and 30, some of us graduated 12 years later of the 30 in my graduating class, about 15 of us had started first grade together. So we are, those who are still alive, um, almost like siblings today. We still communicate and let each other know what's happening with Sam, what's happening with Joe. Oh yeah, so-and-so died. Mm -hmm. And we send flowers anytime one of us is sick or die. So that's kind of what happened. It, it wasn't my plan to be a servant, if you will. It is just my nature. Uh, Franciscans follow St. Francis of Assisi, who was a rich, He was a, his father was rich, but he himself served the poor and gave away a great deal of his father's treasure to the poor. And that's what the Franciscans do. The theory is not to amass a great deal of materialism to yourself. You are to serve the poor. And in fact, the priests in that order take the vow of poverty and service. They don't own cars and houses or anything. They're not allowed by their oath mm -hmm. to amass public, uh, I mean, private gain. So coming out of that background, it's it's like I don't boast and brag about it. In fact, some folks say, yeah, well, you know, that ain't no good virtue to have. You're a sucker. You're going to die poor. And that's what a Franciscan is supposed to do, die poor. <laughs> <laughs> But you are, I mean, you are rich spiritually. Absolutely. Um, and that richness comes from seeing others fulfill their mission and passion, uh, whatever that be. And even if that um, mission and passion for them is to amass a great deal of materialism, we don't say to others, you're not supposed to own things and be uh, that. We say you're not supposed to allow those materials to own you. Mm -hmm. You know what that made me think of, Cal, is um, recently my wife and I were looking into buying a place and, you know, the bank is going through all of our stuff. And um, one question they came to us with is, where's all your stuff? You know, you don't have any stuff. Mm -hmm. And we have a car between the both of us and that's about it. But... I, you know, I've never been interested in, you know, owning a brand new truck or, you know, buying a snow machine and uh, kind of amassing all of these, these things. I've always been more interested in things like this, you know, conversations with people like yourself where I'm, I'm learning and I'm gaining spiritual knowledge as well as you know, historical knowledge. Well, I certainly applaud you on that. Um, because indeed, you know, like you think about across our nation now, people are having hurricanes and pandemics and floods and overnight, all their stuff is being blown away. Mm -hmm. But their inner character 
comes through. Some of the people come back and say, yeah, I'm glad we're alive, or I'm glad I found a picture of so-and-so, and, oh, I'm glad I found my dog. <laughs> so we're coming to realize what is truly um, your treasure and where does your wealth lie. And the best place uh, should be there, which cannot be robbed or stolen or blown away in your heart and in your mind. Considering all of that background that you just finished explaining, has your opinion about the impact of activism changed over the years? Yes. Um, starting out in 1963, I was in the Air Force and I had been trained and being prepared for the war in Vietnam. And in hand-to-hand combat training, we were taught little techniques to kill a person, choke them till the life ooze out of their body. Yes, sir, I want to do it. I want to be the first to kill somebody. And fortunately, I didn't get a chance to do that because they put me in Titan II missile systems based on some schools that I had done in the testing. And I was in the, the missile system out in California, Vandenberg Air Force Base, Lompoc, California, Titan II missile system, didn't get the chance to crawl in the mud and choke somebody. It didn't get um, involved to that level of Vietnam and come back shot up and stuff, or, or as some did, too many died mm-hmm. over there. That didn't happen. But I had this training. I was a killer. I was ready. And I got out and went back to Monroe, Louisiana, and these young people were running around singing We Shall Overcome and members of CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and talking about nonviolence and Mahatma Gandhi and how great it is and how brave and noble it is to not want to fight back and not have violence in your heart. I was like, oh, this is some crazy stuff, but it's exciting. It's the only thing going. And the girls in there are kind of pretty. Yeah, let me hang out and see what this is about. <laughs> And I got involved with CORE, Congress of Racial Equality. And then part of that, we're not going to allow you to go out on the picket line and demonstrate until you have been trained and can show that you can retain your, your anger. You can go out there and allow them to do whatever they want to do to you. So mentally, having gone from uh, a kid growing up as I explained, serving the poor, looking for people that need to, to help, and then being trained to go ready to go out and kill somebody, mm-hmm. and then coming back and being retrained to, to come back and be caring and nonviolent and loving, I come to know and learn that we control our attitude and nobody can make us mad. We allow them, if we will, by placing value on their judgment of us, we allow them to get us angry, upset, depressed, hostile, whatever, and can't control ourselves. And that is uh, where I feel is a weakness rather than the strength to be able to retain that peace and calm even in the, uh, the face of fear and death. I, I love the power that the nonviolent training gave me. Did it take you any amount of time to understand that 
people can't influence you to, you know, commit an act of violence. It is solely up to you. Well, with part of the training that they gave us, but then, you know, you know in your heart that this is just training and this is really fake. The real test of it came when I was in Jonesboro, Louisiana one day and we were a, a caravan of three civil rights cars going from Jonesboro, Louisiana. We were going to go through uh, Monroe, my hometown, and rally at a church and get some more civil rights workers. And we were going to go on down on a caravan to Plaquemine headquarters for CORE in, in Louisiana. And then we were going to have a big rally. And then we were going to go on to New Orleans and picket the federal building over um, some lack of of uh, opportunity that the court was being was granting at the time. And we were stopped just out of Jonesboro, Louisiana, three cars by Chief Beasley, the, the, uh, the uh, chief of the police there in Jonesboro, Louisiana. He followed us for about two or three miles, and then we got almost to the, the next parish line, which would have been Washington Parish, and there, the Washtenaw Parish police was across the road blocking it as if, you know, there was a roadblock ahead. Then Chief Beasley sped up, came on, turned on the lights, and stopped us. And they held us out there. Total amount of time was probably two hours or so. Yeah, y'all got all them people living back there in that house. It's too many of you in one house and colored girls and white girls and you black boys all in that house that y'all causing too much trouble and you outside agitators. Blah, 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 blah. So all this was going on for all that amount of time. Initially I had um, anger and fear and then resolve over that period of time. <clears throat> came to a point of resolve that I am going to die. This is the day that I'm going to die. So there's no sense in whimpering and crying and begging. Die proudly that you have done what you're supposed to do for the movement. And a peace, calm came over me. And I say that I felt the awesome power of God at that time, the feeling that should I die, it was going to be beautiful because there was God right there ready for me to come on and get my reward. So that was a feeling that I I had never had before. Um, it was almost as if I wasn't standing on the ground and, and Beasley was talking, but he couldn't even look me in the eye any, any longer. There was something within my spirit that he couldn't face. Mm -hmm. And uh, they finally... Let us go and move on. Well, during that time, loggers were going by. Ah, Sheriff, give us those niggas. We know what to do with them. Give them out. We'll take them out. And all that was going on during that time that Beasley had us held up there on the road. But again, at some point, um, he said, move on. And we proceeded on down to the rallies and stuff that I talked about. Eventually did get to... New Orleans to picket the federal building. But back to the point of the question um, of when did I um, get that notion that I could be slapped as Chris Rock was 
and not retaliate. That occurred for me on that day with, with uh, Chief Beasley. When you think back on how white people like Beasley, people of perceived authority, spoke to you in a demeaning way just because of your skin color, how do you look at it now? Well, I was buffered by the fact that getting back to my grandmother again, this nurse, Lilla Culpepper, had constant engagement with white people, with doctors and stuff. And I knew Dr. Marks he, and stuff. And we had conversations and Miss Geraldine Bedoyd and all these white people I was engaging with as a child. And then across the street at Little Flower, all of the nuns and priests were white, German, or whatever, nun, not black. I never had, in high school, um, a teacher of color. So I grew up um, engaging in conversation with nuns and priests who insisted that I stand flat-footed and look them in the eye and communicate, unlike uh, what was expected by most Southerners, that you don't look them in the eye, that to them was some sort of challenge. You don't dare um, disagree and you shuffle around and, and fumble with your words and stuff. I had just the opposite um, training, if you will, at Little Flower. They were expecting uh, me to stand up and, and talk back and ponder and express an opinion and stuff. So I was... Uh, I was a odd duck in a sense, or just not me, most of the kids who went to, to Little Flower, the school that I attended, were just that. You could tell in their, mean, their, their attitude and demeanor that they were comfortable with uh, communicating with whites. And we had in our little circle of five, my cousin Richard and three other guys, Pee Wee and Wayne Tanner. These were two white kids whose father, one owned the fish market and the other owned the grocery store. They were of our age and we ran around hunting and shooting birds together and out in the cemetery looking for, for um, birds to shoot at and stuff. So I grew up not really knowing the sting of racism and segregation until I had gone in the Air Force, and then I became aware that, wow, black folks are not in the majority. I thought there were more black people in, in the world than white because of the way structural segregation was. The neighborhood, there was a black side of town and a white side of town. And so I thought that there were just, you know, those few white people who owned the grocery stores on the corner and Dr. Marx, who came in from somewhere and disappeared back to somewhere. But the world that I was in, walking and bicycling in, was um, mostly black. And we had black lawyers and doctors and, and stuff, professional people uh, that I was in contact with. My father came back from the military, and most of those guys, Dr. Reddick and all those, were his peers, and he talked to them peer-to-peer um, -peer and stuff. So, again, my, my uh, concept of being oppressed didn't occur until after I had gone and come back and core 
guy named Michael Lesser, Jewish guy from New York, was there giving us this business every night about uh, the laws are wrong and this shouldn't be and we need to demonstrate and do public accommodation, all that stuff. Before that, we knew that there was the Ritz Theater, which was all black, and the Paramount Theater where if you were black, you went to the Paramount, but you had to sit upstairs in the balcony. Well, all these things we accepted. That was systemic separation of the races, but we didn't really view that as oppressive or oppression. Um, some found joy in being upstairs throwing ice down on the white folks and stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. We are the ones in charge. They, mm -hmm. they aren't the ones in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Misconcept. <laughs> but while in the military, again, in California and in Texas, this was the first time getting out of my hometown and didn't have the surrounding of my grandmother and Sister Consuela and all this other stuff. I'm looking at the real world. Here I am in this place. And just by coincidence, if you will, in the barracks that I was in, each barracks had, you know, two airmen in it, but there I was in a room and no airman ever chose to me as as a roommate. And I viewed that as, hey, that's cool. I've got two beds and I can decorate one as a sofa and have the other one as a bed. I don't have to put up with a roommate. And so I thought this was great. I didn't realize that, that I mean, I didn't see it as, well, the white folks don't want us to know I was the only black in the unit, in the system, and I just didn't see it that, oh, white folks don't want to stay in here with me. I saw it as, hey, I've got a private room. But I did have, obviously, white friends, in fact, one from South Carolina. Barry was a big, uh, <laughs> big old teddy bear, I call him. He was racist as he, as he could be, but uh, in the course of our engagement and time there and me helping him with uh, the academics of it and him helping me with the, the gun cleaning and shooting and all that stuff, we became very, very tight buddies. So um, the racial sting of, of uh, feeling that I missed out on something is uh, far less than what I witnessed. And even today, uh, now, I fight for the rights of others. Um, but truly, I don't feel that I have been denied practically anything that I've gone for myself. But that's just me and um, God and luck. Um, most of the jobs that I held here in Anchorage, a good number of them, especially in the earlier days, I had been asked to come to work at the place. And in, in two of the situations, I had worked on the job for almost a month before somebody came and said, hey, we need you to fill out a, an application. <laughs> so, so you were already working there, and then you fill out the paperwork to work there. <laughs> right, yeah, a couple <laughs> places. 
<laughs> it had been a situation of, hey, Cal, why don't you come to work for us? Well, okay. And then I'd be over there working and stuff, and somebody from personnel would say, hey, you need to fill out the paperwork so you can get paid. <laughs> so, <laughs> the very first job, I, I arrived here in Anchorage January the 5th, 1965, and this buddy of mine, John, who was from Little Flower, and but he was up here for about five years at the time because his dad had been up here for years. John worked at Providence Hospital, and he told Mrs. Johnson in the kitchen where he worked, he was a student at uh, the, the university just mm -hmm. down the road from Providence Hospital, and they had a, a tendency to hire these students. He was working in the kitchen and convinced her that I was a good Catholic, good friend of his, and could come to work there. She said, yeah, bring him in. So I got into town on the 5th of January, and on the 6th of January, I was the director of pots and pan cleaning in the kitchen at Providence Hospital the next day. And a couple of months from there, I moved across the street at Alaska Psychiatric Institute, they were paying $308 a month, which was $8 more than I was making at Providence. So for $8, I crossed the street. Here again, no plan, but I stumbled into working for the state, and the state had tier one health care. So I worked there for a couple of years, and then went off working for other companies and stuff and came back and worked for the state. And they connected those two employments and gave me insurance, which today is a blessing because I have full coverage on health care. But you were talking earlier about what made you do this, what, mm -hmm. what uh, was your drive. And again, I have to say it was more a pull um, things just coming my way without, I don't recommend this, but it has worked for me that opportunities God has placed before me and I've just made selections about, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like how you said that mm. activism has always been more of a pull than a draw for you. Yeah, I feel that. Um, and how has it changed? Back in the day, because of the oppression and the inability to do certain things, I feel that black people in particular were drawn more strongly together than today. There was a time at which no two black people would encounter each other on the street without a nod, a wave, or even a raise of the fist. Said the power, power to the people, brother. Yeah, brother. But suddenly, somebody has convinced us that that's old and unneeded. That war has been fought and won. And regretfully, it hasn't been won. There has been a diversion of the energy 
and the success of some has led to the failure to reach back and bring aboard others. We have far too many firsts. I'm the first, I'm the only, I'm the this and that, rather than a building of uh, generational and community wealth. Back in the day, we had restaurants and bars here in Anchorage. When I got here in 1965, we had far more black-owned restaurants and bars than we do today. And people say, well, it's a bar. I mean, that's not a good thing. Indeed, here in Alaska, it certainly is. Uh, a liquor license could cost you $200,000 to get, and there's a limited number of them, and you can sell them after your business didn't work and stuff. So there is a wealth that is retained uh, through the generations from people who just happen to have gotten a fishing license way back in the day that they've been able to pass down to their relatives or a liquor license that they've been able to pass down to their relatives. So it's almost as if you didn't get in back in the day, it's tough for you to get in now. And so that economics works against a person. You don't have to put a sign up that says no blacks allowed. You just can't get in because your dad wasn't in. What originally brought you to Alaska? Uh, these friends of mine, I mentioned John, but there was John and Charles Lavige. They were classmates and high school buddies of mine. We hung out at each other's house eating food. I called their mother, mother, and they called my grandmother um, something similar to a, a relative's, you know, to do so. We were like mm -hmm. raised like brothers and they came to Alaska after graduation from high school because their dad had been up here painting and a contractor out on base doing all kinds of work for the government. He brought them up here and two years later, they convinced me to come up and see what it was like. And I'm still here since 1965. How would you describe Anchorage in the 60s? Oh my goodness, <laughs> compare it again to the um, environment that I had come from 
hmm. involved in civil rights, as I said, and confronting Sheriff Beasley and the mayor of my hometown at the time um, had a restaurant downtown that we had to pick it. Uh, Jack Howard was his name. There he was, a racist. Um, I, along with seven other students, integrated Northeast Louisiana State College, which is Northeast State University. Now, we were the first students to attend there. And the president of the university, after Sarah, one of Sarah McCoy, one of our uh, black students, had been held up and verbally assaulted by some students over near the library or something. We had run over there, yeah, we're going to defend Sarah. And there was a big, not physical, but a lot of shouting and carrying on. Mm-hmm. The president at the time, I can't remember his name, said, well, I'm just telling you now, if there's a fight, I don't care who started that fight, everybody going to be expelled. Everybody involved in that fight. I don't care who started it. So he let it be known that he was not too excited about us eight students being out there. Then I came here, and John and Charles were attending Alaska Pacific University, which is now called Alaska Methodist University. They were in the newspaper playing basketball and scoring 20, 30 points a game. We had bull sessions at night sitting around talking about mostly history and philosophy and there we were three blacks in a room with eight or nine white students all engaging in dialogue as if we were the senators of rome gonna resolve the world so i thought man this is totally different from monroe louisiana in 1965 and that feeling of um, involvement, engagement with members of another race, particularly the white race, who, let's face it, are the ones in charge, that was a feeling that I embrace and do today. And when I say to people, well, most of my friends are white, they say, ooh. You say something like that, you ain't nothing but Uncle Tom. <laughs> Wait, let me explain it. Let me explain it. The population of whites in Anchorage far exceeds the number of blacks. And I have been here since 1965. And over that time, I have acquired thousands of friends. And just numerically, that's going to turn out to be more white. And as I get older, it seemed like Far too many of my black friends are dying of COVID or old age or something. So that ratio is growing even wider. Um, That is, again, how I explain what Alaska is. Mm -hmm. Unlike cousins of mine who live in, say, Chicago and are on the south side where for miles and miles and miles everybody's black, that's a different world from where I now live. Um, and for, my God, I don't think I can hit a golf ball to the next black household where I live uh, in the neighborhood that I'm in. In fact, that's another story. 
the neighborhood that I'm living in. I bought the house from Charles, this friend of mine, bought it from his mother. And we always knew that she was the only black over in that neighborhood, but wasn't really sure why until I bought it from her 10 years later. And then about five years after I purchased it, I finally got around to looking at the paperwork and one of the things that I had signed was a covenant that said none other than members of the Caucasian race are allowed to buy property in this subdivision. Redlining. Right. And that 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 uh, clause had been in there, that covenant mm-hmm. had been in this in these documents of exchange for purchase since that subdivision was developed in 1970. But I'm speculating that even the people who first sold those properties probably never read that, a number of them, because, you know, you when you're buying a house, you're just signing wherever they put the little yellow thing, sign here, initial there, sign this, initial that, and you don't, most people, like me, read those papers for years, if ever. <laughs> what was it like reading that? It was surprising in in a sense, but we had here in Anchorage, Alaska, the reason the NAACP first came to Alaska, a man named Alvin Campbell, who worked for the railroad, a black man, at, by day, and at Evening after he was off work, he was building a home in an area called Rogers Park. And some white guys from Texas, Gatlin, that's what their last name, came, boy, you can build that house, but you ain't never going to sleep in it. And sure enough, they burned the house to the ground before it was completed. And Mr. Campbell then went complaining to some black friends around town, Blanche McSmith, Joe Josephson, uh, John Thomas. These are people who are history makers here in Alaska. Mm -hmm. He was talking to them. They decided, well, let's write a letter to NAACP back in New York, see if we can start the NAACP here. They did. They were accepted. And that's how the NAACP got started here in Anchorage, Alaska in 1951 as a result of the burning of that home. So I had been aware of that, certainly, because I was the president of the NAACP in 1968. I knew this history of that house burning, and I knew from that about you know the redlining. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what kinds of political and social issues were being discussed when you first got to Alaska, and then also around the time that you're talking about now? When I first got here, the NAACP, again, which had been formed in 1951, I got here in 65. So, Blanche McSmith, who was the president at the time, had a big march downtown in Anchorage, and about 5,000 people participated, and that march was in sympathy with marches that were occurring in the lower 48 for anti-lynching. And in that march was the mayor at the time, Elmer Rasmussen, the chief of police, Chief Flanagan, marching in concert with the NAACP. So that was the big issue there was lynching in the lower 48. 
coming along when I was the president in NAACP 1968, the issues were out on the military bases, the brothers wanted to wear afros and the military was had regulations against that hairstyle. <laughs> that was that was the big issue, hairstyle. Mm. Um, at the same time, there was a push to get the Alaska pipeline started. And before doing so, there had to be an agreement with these Alaska natives who lived throughout Alaska and had traditionally been stewards without deeds or ownership to a land, but claimed that this is our land from native rights going back thousands of years. We have hunted here and we've fished here and this is our traditional land where we've held sacred ceremonies and buried our people. Mm -hmm. The NAACP, with me as the president, involved ourselves with that movement. And that, again, was a parallel um, thrust of what was happening socially, politically, and in terms of uh, racial justice. Native rights and the rights of... Uh, African-Americans out on the base where they were, there were unequal uh, facilities for, for white salon, beauty salons and black beauty salons. They at that time had not integrated fully in a sense uh, and it, there were no signs that said this is the white salon and this is the black salon, but it just happened to be that the black beauticians were at one salon and the whites were at another. And the ladies would say, oh, well, I, I want to go to the black lady because she know how to deal with my hair. So there was, <laughs> there was selective segregation, if you will. Mm -hmm. If you were to compare those political and social issues to the ones being talked about today, do you think that we've progressed, that we've become more united in understanding or are things about the same as they always have been? Well, things are uh, somewhat the same and to some degree even worse because back in the day, you know, an atrocity would occur and people wouldn't immediately know about it around the world. Nowadays, because of the constant connectivity that we have um, and Facebook and all that stuff, overnight you can find out that this person was mistreated and we think it was because of the color of their skin or the, their sexual orientation. So that coupled with the pandemic, everybody's short-tempered and mad and we've got the anti-vaxxers against the vaxxers and the anti-mask people against the mask. This is crossing all kinds of crazy lines in a sense. But on the other hand, a neighbor of mine, white guy, Billy, down the street from me, I've known him for years and years and years. I walked into the health spa of the men's Alaska, well, it's no, both men and women. The Alaska Club is a, a membership health spa and weight room and all that stuff 
there I was in the place with my mask on, and Billy said, ah, Cal, I see you got that mask on. <laughs> you Democrats. Well, I said, man, wait a minute. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you're going to call out Democrats because I got a mask on. You're gonna, Come on, Billy. <laughs> so we've got that kind of line of, of demarcation, if you will. And it doesn't didn't help that uh, we had an attack on the Capitol and our past president seemingly aligning himself with uh, people who are not as progressive or don't believe in this uh, this equality business. And then we've got people who are lining up the gun rights people against the non-gun rights people and the, 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 the straight people lining up against all of this gay activity in the schools and, and textbooks banning stuff. We've got so many different forces and wars going until that of the black against the white or black black man in the white world um, force is being swallowed up in a sense or in some cases saying, ah, didn't we settle that already? That issue's already settled. And it has not. Uh, we have individual blacks who do outstanding things and become the first and the only and the first person on the Supreme Court, the first person here and there. But that's not equality. That's still tokenism in a sense. That's, oh, why should we be amazed that we've got one black person now finally, finally, uh, the coach at a college thing. Oh, why? And it, was, it wasn't too many years ago we didn't have a, black quarterback because they can run and they can catch but I don't think they can run a team as a quarterback and, uh, well they can run and play but ownership uh, you know they don't have the, the means and the, the wherewithal the banks are not making the loan there's so much systemic injustice mm. that um, some people have just given up and think well within my lifetime it ain't gonna happen so <sighs> there's nothing you can do. I might as well do nothing. There's far too much of that. Complacency. Yes, complacency set in. And a lot of the young people who don't see the world as I do because hopefully they're right. I'm hoping that they are right, that uh, things aren't the way they were when I was coming along, but I still see it as need to do work and they see it as Oh, man, you're talking crazy. Most of my friends are white. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I said that, didn't I? <laughs> well, they didn't live through it. Right. And maybe they don't see it as this, this issue that in order for it to continue to progress, then people need to be diligent. Yeah. Yeah, we've got uh, the, the caucuses this weekend are going to start caucuses for the Democratic Party anyway, where you go two hours on a Zoom, and for each district, there'll probably be nine, ten people show up, and those nine or ten people will elect themselves as the chair of the district and the, the secretary and the treasurer of the district and stuff. And I put it on a Facebook page black folks in alaska and i think about two people 
indicated that there was a like or an interest and stuff. And I thought, uh, back in my day, people were registering people and pushing to get to the convention and being pushed out of the convention. Here the thing is wide open now, and I can't get, get these kids to even ask me, what is that? <laughs> I asked a, a group the other day about some volunteering. Yeah, I like to volunteer. How much do they pay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, I read that you participated in the 1963 March on Washington. What was that experience like? Well, again, that was <clears throat> a, a pull <laughs> rather than a push. We were involved in the civil rights movement and stuff down there. And we were involved locally with voter registration and all this other stuff and not paying very much attention to what's happening in, on the national scene. And then people started making these speeches in churches about, yeah, we're going to the March on Washington. Are you going? No, well, what is that? You ain't going to the March on Washington? Oh, man, you got to go to the March on Washington. <laughs> so, oh, really? Well, oh, I guess, okay, let's go. And then you got there and saw all of these people, my God, from around. Ooh, it's not just me and my little group mm -hmm. doing what we do. There's people from all over the nation involved, and some people from outside the nation are here. My goodness, this is bigger than I thought. That, and when I was there on the mall for the Million Man March, even more so because I had become more than aware of the power of these kind of gatherings, um, the, the first one was, you know, as I say, you went, I did, went to it, not really knowing what it was before leaving home and and then getting back and hearing people talk about, ooh, you were there, man, that was something else. Like, oh, I guess it was. Uh, all I remember is that I, we slept under the tree. <laughs> that was something. <laughs> oh, I guess, ooh, okay, I guess I was involved in something. Um, but then at the march on the Million Man March, there we were, and people were pressing forward pressing forward, trying to get a little closer, trying to get a little closer, and people were being um, crushed up in front. And Farrakhan said, hey, hey, stop, hold it. We need everybody to take two steps back. Two steps back. We need everybody. Take two steps back. And we did, and it went boom, boom. Felt like the earth shook. I thought, wow, my God. Collectively, that is powerful. We just shook mm -hmm. the world by stepping back two steps. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then another instance, he says, everybody reach in your pocket and take out a dollar. We did. Hold it in the air. Look around. Look at it. That's a million dollars you're looking at. <laughs> oh, yeah. My little one dollar don't mean much, but when you look at it in the air here with all these hands holding it up, that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So those two illustrations, uh, I remember to, remember to this day and hold in my, my collective memory that united, 
we, and the we can be anybody, um, we Americans, we blacks, we whites, we Mexicans, we gay, we straight, whatever that we is, collectively, um, there is power in unity. And mm -hmm. if we can find a common cause of unity and respect, oh man, what a powerful nation we can be. And in theory and in um, rules and regulations and stuff, we are. But in the implementation and the constant fighting over turf, we seem to lose our way. Do you remember the the things people were talking about at those marches, the March on Washington and the Million Man March? Mostly people were talking about what they were doing back in their, their hometown. Oh, well, what are you guys? Yeah, well, we're getting grants for this, so we're doing that, or we are doing a breakfast program. Was, people were mostly talking about where they came from mm -hmm. and how long they had been involved in the movement. Uh, but most people, I thought, at the end of these things, when it was over, the programs were over and stuff, people had that feeling of, we don't want to go back home. We want to linger and talk more about what just happened and what we plan to do. And I don't want to leave you because I know I'm not going to see you again, but uh, you and I are going to be in this thing together. There's a... a um, storyteller a guy i met he's from georgia and every now and then i'll look on facebook i met him at the million man march and every now and then i'll look at facebook to see that wow he's getting on up there in age but he's still out there doing those stories <laughs> you know i asked that question because i think it's one thing to read about those events in history books now and another to have actually been there you know, to be a part of that massive show of unity and advocating for equality. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it leaves you with a with an uplift. We uh, from the Million Man March. I think there was seven people that came back and were here, trying to keep it together. Uh, we got back and there were the people. They had an event over at the library. Oh, yeah, the people that went to the Million Man March are going to speak. And we spoke and stuff. And next year, we're going to do that again. Yeah, we're going to get back together. And so then it just started dwindling away. Well, I've heard that. Then. Oh, we don't want to hear that anymore. So it kind of faded away. But, you know, those kind of things need to be sustained as things within the church um comes in in revolving we're going to go through a dramatization of christ being crucified and rising out of the thing little children are going to put on the play again and, and nobody says didn't we do that last year we don't need to do that no more those conversations need to continue uh, summits where we come together and and talk about what are the issues of the day just as you just asked what were the issues back then and they did indeed change from from a culture we can't grow our hair this way to hey why aren't we getting those contracts from the, the to do the the issues change but the war is not 
yet over. We just need to keep on finding those areas of engagement that need to be um, addressed. And economics is certainly, uh, economics and healthcare, this pandemic has shown clearly inequality of, of that. Yeah. Okay, so I told you that we'd get back to the museum. And I think this is it. This is the time to get back. <laughs> the museum. Yes, indeed. What can you tell me about your work as the curator of the History Makers Archival Collection for the Anchorage Museum? Well, I'm excited about that. Um, all of the time I have been running around and doing stuff and getting older and thinking, oh, things were better back in the good old days and these young people need to know what we did because we was great and we did and blah, 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 blah. That was in the back of my head. And I'm going to die and they ain't going to know what we did. And I had a friend of mine named George Harper who he's passed on now, but he was the historian. He was collecting all kinds of photographs of African-Americans who were here in Alaska back in the 1800s and the gold mining times and all that. And, and I had this interest in local blacks that most of them who I knew from the 60s. And so those were the people I was trying to highlight and arguing with, with George. Ah, George, you interested in them people from way back in the day. You need to be more interested in the people of, that we knew. And I'm glad he didn't listen to me because as a result of the work that George Harper did, there was a, um, an excitement about this history that, oh my goodness, Michael Healy was uh, a captain in the, co in the, the um, what is the thing, the, the Coast Guard, and was a marshal and all this stuff. And oh my goodness, here's some people who had grub stakes and stuff back in the 1800s. The university took an interest in George's collection and George endowed them with his collection upon his death. So then the university had the George Harper collection and people were more interested in it after he was dead than when he was going around and doing his demonstrations and showing us those photographs. So out of his collection came an interest at the university level and I would go out there and get his collection and run around doing Black History Month and show it off and talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly um, the museum wanted some interest or had some interest in it. And then the history makers, this is a group out of Chicago, um, heard about some Alaskans who had done noteworthy stuff and came up and declared 10 people history makers, and I was one among them. And they interviewed us and put us in the History Makers Archive back in Chicago. So the, the interest in African-American history just kept building and building. And we had a, a program here at the museum, and the museum people became interested. So here for the first time, were the entities that had been uh, not necessarily in competition, but didn't have a great interest in this subject, all three coming together at the same time saying, 
it's interesting and let's work collaboratively together. So a professor, Ian Hartman at the University of Alaska had written a book, a lot of biographical sketches of various people uh, from Alaska in his book. And he's a professor at the university and he and the Julie here at the um, museum, the archivist, Mm-hmm. and Julie Decker, who's over the museum, and then Diane Kemplin, who is a, with a funding agency here, the Rasmussen Foundation here is one of the great philanthropic agencies that doles out money. So all of those elements came together at the same time, and we have been able to do now plays, and we had throughout the entire summer, a Black Lives Matter display in the atrium. The largest room in this museum had big photographs of of African-Americans who had done something. Blanche McSmith, the the first black to serve in the the Alaska legislature. Um, Willard Bowman, who again served in the legislature. A black who amassed a great deal of money, Zula Swanson and stuff. We had all those photographs and a great audience of blacks who had, prior to that time, not found great interest in the museum because, you know, the, the subjects were not that which drew them. Came to the museum, found friendly welcome and display and are now coming back for the other displays that are available here. And we're gonna do more collecting of African-American uh, history. Julie has uh, opened the archives for me to collect as much as I can because a lot of people who read Dr. Hardman's books said, why my grandfather ain't in there? Why I ain't in there? <laughs> You need to get my story. So he's rewriting uh, or writing an an additional book. And the museum is saying, yeah, bring your stuff. So this is a great, 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 great time for the interest in in the subject. And of course, Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd incident and all that other kind of stuff Mm -hmm. has garnered another interest in, well, have we been fair? Have we looked at this situation? And I want to learn more and I need to listen and I want to be involved. So this is a pregnant moment, a rightful um, interest is out there and I'm just so excited to be a part of uh, doing whatever I can with the talents that I have amassed photography and music and singing and drama and theater. I want to put all of that um, together as much as I possibly can, get out as much of this information as I possibly can before I die some 25, 30 years from now. What do you think it means for the community of Anchorage and the state of Alaska to share these stories? Well, the greatest thing, of course, is what it does to individual kids growing up, showing them 
the possibilities mm -hmm. and showing them what has been done so that they can know that, wow, we're not reinventing the wheels. We're carrying on a great legacy here. That is what I wish most out of all of this is that we can get people to respect where they have been and to respect where others have been. Because if my worth is uh, valued, then you're less likely to dismiss or harm me. And if I value your work and your being, then I am less likely to attack you and, and want to see ill harm come to you because I appreciate what you do. Mm -hmm. So in all of my presentations, when I do one on black history, I say before I leave to the audience, no matter what your race is, no matter who your family is, your history is important. Mm -hmm. And please go and get with older members of your family and have them identify photographs and people within your family because black, white, Polish, Jewish, whatever your family background is, know it, embrace it, and that will buffer you against all of the attacks and ill judgments that will come your way in life. You will not be jealous and envious of others because you will know how rich and great your history is. So that's kind of why I do this, is that I want people to respect themselves, and that would in my opinion, make them less likely to be envious and hateful of others. I hope this isn't too morbid of a question, but do you ever have a sense of urgency to preserve certain stories, maybe before that person passes away and the story is lost forever? Absolutely. And I say it at funerals uh, when I get up and speak because... Here in Alaska especially, a lot of times the older person lives here, but their next of kin is somebody living in Oregon, Washington, New York, elsewhere. And they will come for the funeral, go by the bank, see what monies are there, do what they can with the house, throw all of the old clothing and stuff, and sadly, the photographs and certificates and plaques and awards and stuff that that person had in the dumpster. And so I say that at, at funerals, please do not do that. And if you have a relative that die and stuff and you want somebody to help you with that, call me. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so that's kind of what I do. I chase the dead for obituaries in the newspaper etc. Because a lot of times, that's the only time some of these people are ever in the newspapers when their obituary is written. So we don't know, oh, I didn't know that was his real name and that he was from Louisiana, my state. I, we've talked to the guy for years and didn't know that. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I try to do that is collect as much as I can that history. There's a a picture of my in, that was in the newspaper. This friend of mine, Charles, his daughter played high school basketball. In fact, she was on three of East High's championship teams. They won three years in a row. But 
One of the pictures in the paper has her and Sarah Palin, who ran for governor. They would, her team, Wasilla, was playing my niece's team, East High, and that picture was in the paper. And one day I was throwing out newspapers and I almost threw that picture away. And I thought, God darn, I'm glad I looked before I did that. So that's the kind of razor edge that I walk is that you never know what piece of paper is going to be of high uh, historical value. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you to think back and consider all of your accomplishments and achievements. Which ones are you most proud of? Oh, that's very easy, and I've said it before. Um, about... I guess about seven or eight years now ago, I was awarded the St. Francis um, Award. They, annually here, they give out this award. And it just happened to be named after the patron saint of Little Flower, the, the St. Francis Award. And I got the thing. And then I, I realized after, oh, probably a year after receiving it, that Wow, old fool, this is kind of like a true divinity or comeuppance. You've come full circle. Here the Franciscans started Little Flower, which set you out on this road of service. And here's some 6,000 miles away. Some people have an award named after the same patron saint of the school that you attended. And you've come 6,000 miles, spent... 40 years in this place at the time, 50 maybe, hmm. and, then, and then receive this award. Uh, you know, is this, some people say, is that God giving you a message or what? But that award um, is one that I treasure and wish Sister Consuela and Father Ardwin would have been alive so that I could tell them, hey, look what I got. <laughs> <laughs> When you think about future generations of Alaskans and their role in activism and politics, what do you hope? I hope indeed that one day, you know, we won't have to talk about these kind of, well, what is the difference in this and that? It would just be that um, it'll be as people claim that, oh, I don't see color. To me, everybody's the same. I, and colorblind, I, I'm wishing and hoping that that indeed will occur, and I know it can because, um, because of my involvement, like I say, constantly in, engaging with more white people than black, and my, and my growing up, uh, training at at school with those teachers, and with my life being what it is, being a Catholic. There's very few black people in, in my church. I, I try and invite and get more, but but the truth is um, the largest black population um, are Baptists and attend Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church here and then the Methodist group, First CME. And when I go <laughs> to one of those churches, they say, where you been? I ain't seen you in church in so long. <laughs> well, <laughs> I go every Sunday. I'm the director of the 
the choir at St. Anthony's Catholic Church. Come on over one day. So in that regard, um, I am constantly engaging with people and, and don't have time to think that, oh, my neighbors on all sides of my house are white. I just see as, oh, that's Amber and that's Kaylee and that's the dog is named Max and so on. So, yeah, that's the way I see the people in my neighborhood. And then all of a sudden, I, oh, yeah, they're all white. I, it, it just doesn't occur to me like that. And I'm hoping indeed that people, and I think a lot of people are um, at that point where they just see their friends as, Sam, Joe, and so-and-so without saying, my colored friend so-and-so, he's colored, but he, he articulates well, and he uh, he has a title, and he's a, he's somebody big. You know, I, I'm hoping that people don't have to justify why they know a person of a different race. Mm -hmm. And I go to funerals, and oftentimes I can tell the character of that person by the diversity of the people who attend that funeral. You know, Cal, that does it for my questions. I'm in awe of your memory and also your story. You know, I guess, I mean, the last thing I'll say, I, you know, I, I've been trying to just be quiet and listen because I'm just, um, you know, every so often it feels like I'm not recording a podcast. I'm I'm listening to a podcast. And this is one of those times where I'm just sitting here trying to listen to you and soak up all of your your history, your knowledge, all of that. So, you know, thank you so much for talking with me today and sharing your memories. Well, thank you, Cody. Thank you so very much. And it was easy and and doing it, I, I thought, well, a whole hour, but it seems to have flown by so fast. And I do appreciate <laughs> your, your pulling this out of me. Um, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. I'm excited about that. And I hope, indeed, that, you know, it's verbal and, and not a video. I'm hoping that it doesn't get long and boring to the listeners. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, basically, that, as I said, I truly do believe in my heart that we can and will get to that place of viewing each other as one. That is my long hope and would be the fulfillment of a dream that my grandfather had said, boy, y'all keep on doing what y'all doing in that civil rights stuff because when y'all get as old as me, Ain't gonna be none of that mess. Well, I'm some 20 years older than he was at the time that he made that statement. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum. With additional help, from Julie Decker and Julie Varee. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. <laughs>